I'm Avery Smith of the Rock Candy Podcast Network, and you're listening to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. Ramadan Mubarak to my Muslim listeners. May you keep safe and be blessed this month. And happy Easter season to my Christian listeners. This episode centers around the resurrection that we celebrate in this season, but in a way you may not be used to. We're going to be honing in on the physicality of Jesus's rising as part of an exploration of the holiness and goodness of bodies. Bring in the intersex body of the first human, that God created in Genesis 2, alongside the wounds on Jesus's risen body, and we'll see how the incredible diversity of our bodies is essential to that goodness and holiness. But before we get started, let me introduce you to one of the other podcasts on the Rock Candy Network. Hi, I'm Liam Hooper. And I'm Peterson Toscano. Together, we co-host the Bible Bash podcast, Each month, we look into a different ancient story. We're curious to find insights into our own queer lives. We discuss these and share our findings with you. You can find the Bible Bash podcast pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out at the end of each month. Back to embodiment. Living in the Western world, our conceptions of embodiment are complicated, to say the least. Our consumerist culture overemphasizes some aspects of physicality. We buy the lie that we must cover up our blemishes, eliminate wrinkles, wear the right clothes, and be a certain weight in order to be beautiful, and that we must be physically beautiful in order to be worthy of love. So we are overfocused on some parts of our bodies, but at the same time we are taught to look down on physicality in other ways to be embarrassed of any parts of embodied life that we consider shameful or weak. In this, we've been influenced by Greco-Roman dualism, in which body and spirit are disconnected things, with the body and the material world painted as lesser and baser than our minds and the mental or spiritual world. But authors of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh of Judaism, and the Old Testament of Christianity belonged to cultures that did not teach this disconnection of spirit and body. A human being was a nephesh, a soul that consisted both of flesh and spirit. The idea of separating one from the other would have been absurd to these writers. The first human came straight from the earth, shaped from soil by the Creator, who then breathed life into that soil, and only then was that soil a living being. You couldn't separate the breath from the flesh and still call it a human. Not the way we, in our day, sometimes speak of heaven as a place where we will be bodiless spirits. 
In a future episode, I'll go into more detail about how the Western world's hierarchy, pitting mind above body, rationality above emotion, spirit above flesh, has been used to justify oppression of marginalized groups by associating them with the supposedly baser embodied elements, while privileged groups get to claim themselves rulers of rationality, their thoughts and actions objective and therefore superior. For now, just know that all of that stuff is in the background of the sermon that I wrote and preached this past Sunday and that I am now going to share with you. Before the sermon, I'm going to start with not one, not two, but three scripture readings, which is a lot. But they're in my own translation from the original Hebrew and Greek, so even if you've heard the tales of God creating the first human and Jesus appearing to Thomas a thousand times, you might hear something fresh this time around. And if you've never heard these stories before, settle back and enjoy. They're really interesting, no matter what your own faith background is. One more thing before we dive in. As you listen to the scripture texts and the sermon after it, I encourage you to intentionally invite your body to move in whatever way feels good. That might be pacing or rocking back and forth, flapping your hands or humming, or maybe it's finding an object to fidget with. Absorb this episode into your body as well as your mind. During the worship service this past Sunday, which I'll link in the show notes so you can go watch the whole service if you're interested, I first led the congregation in an embodied prayer centered around stimming. Stimming is short for self-stimulatory behavior, which is common among autistic persons and other neurodivergent folk. Stimming encompasses the various motions or sounds or actions we make in order to gain some agency over sensory input. When we feel understimulated or overstimulated by the world around us, when it's too loud and crowded and the lights are too bright, or else when it's too quiet or we're stressed or anxious, the natural response for many autistic persons is to let those feelings out through our bodies, or to create our own sensory output to balance or combat the sensory input. However, many autism-centered therapies, such as ABA therapies, teach autistic folk to repress these natural ways our bodies move with the argument that stimming looks weird, that it will keep us from fitting in and therefore thriving in society. But assimilation is not the key to our true flourishing, nor is it what the divine wills for us. April is officially called Autism Awareness Month, but many members of the autistic community say there's already plenty of awareness of autism. What we really need is acceptance for autistic persons and appreciation for our unique gifts and traits, including stimming. Learning to accept my own autistic self and the way my autistic body moves has helped me be more comfortable in my own skin, and that's a gift I hope to share with you. That is why I invite you to bring your whole self, body, and spirit into your listening to this episode by stimming, by paying attention to the needs and wants of your body instead of tuning them out or repressing them like we often tend to do. All right, let's begin with the scripture. A reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 7 through 8 and 18 through 25. 
Living God formed the human out of dirt from the ground and breathed into their nostrils the breath of life, and the human became a living being. Living God planted a garden in Eden from the east, and there Z set the human whom Z had formed. And Living God said, It is not good for the human to be alone. I will make for them a helpful counterpart. So Living God formed out of the ground every creature of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the human to see what they would call them. And whatever the human called a creature, that was its name. The human called out names to all the beasts, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every creature of the field, but for the human no helpful counterpart was found. So Living God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the human. As they slept, Z took part of their side and closed up the flesh under it. Living God built the side Z had taken from the human into a woman and brought her to the rest of the human. And the human said, This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because from a man this one was taken. This is why a man tends to leave his father and his mother and stick to his woman and they become one flesh. The two of them were naked, the human and their woman, and they were not ashamed. A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. Then when it was the evening of that day, the first day of the week, despite the doors having been shut tight where the disciples gathered on account of fear of political authorities, Jesus came and stood in their midst. And he said to them, Peace to you. And having said that, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced upon seeing the Lord. Then Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. Just as the Father has sent me forth, so I also send you. And upon saying this, he breathed into them. And he said to them, Accept the Holy Spirit. If you let go of the wrongs of any, they are let go. If you hold fast to anyone's wrongs, they are held fast. But Thomas, one of the twelve, the one called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and put my finger into the mark of the nails, and put my hand into his side, no, I must not believe it. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Despite the doors having been shut tight, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Bring your finger here. Examine my hands. Bring your hand also and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas replied to him saying, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are the ones who have not seen, yet have believed. A reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, 25 through 29. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are in fact dying away. 
but to those, us, who are being restored, it is the power of God. For it has been written, I will wipe away the wisdom of the wise, and the intellect of the intelligent I will cast aside. Consider your calling, siblings, how not many of you are wise in the ways of the flesh, nor many powerful, nor many born privileged. But God chose what the world deems foolish in order to embarrass the wise, and God chose what the world deems weak in order to embarrass the strong. Being embodied sure comes with a lot of trouble. Some of those troubles are more or less universal. Scraped knees and getting sick, the aches and pains of aging, the discomfort of sticky sweat and shivering cold. But other troubles are particular to particular types of bodies, such as bodies that experience chronic illness or chronic pain, or bodies that have been racialized, profiled, made invisible or hypervisible. It's no wonder that many of us dream of a heaven where we won't have any sort of body at all, just a spirit free of its cage at last. Why wouldn't a body feel like a cage to those of us whose bodies have been labeled as other, as inferior, as broken, or who experience pain that others don't take seriously? From birth, society steeps us in the assumption that certain kinds of bodies are normative and all other kinds of bodies are deviant from that norm. White bodies are the default, black and brown bodies an aberration. Fat bodies are overweight, thin bodies, intersex bodies are deformed, parasex bodies, and so on. Use Christian theology of the fallen state of the world to explain why some bodies come out wrong, and you've got a truly toxic justification for the oppression of some and privileging of others. But the two scripture stories we're about to explore have some things to say about all of this because Jesus and the first human being are connected by scar tissue. Jesus and the first human were both born into bodies that the world would label broken, and both sustained changes to their bodies that the world would call mutilation. Let's start at the beginning, with the first human. This person is often identified as Adam, as of Adam and Eve, even though in Genesis 2, the Hebrew word Adam is not being used as a personal name. It is simply the general word for human being. Within the Hebrew of this text, the word the, ha, is put in front of Adam. So likewise, I will be calling this being ha-Adam, the human. This is not this person's name. No name is given yet. For why would you need a personal name when you are the only one of your kind? This is simply the neutral word for human, as opposed to a gendered term like ish, which means man specifically. That is also why I use they pronouns for ha-adam, rather than he pronouns like you'll find in most translations into English. As long as ha-adam is the only one of their kind, gendered terms like man are not ascribed to them in the Hebrew. In fact, Ancient Jewish scholarship taught that this first human was androgynous, in the literal sense of the term, that their body had elements we describe as male and elements that we describe as female. Meanwhile, some early Christian scholars imagined Ha'adam as being sexually undifferentiated, for while there was only one human being, what need was there for sexual traits? 
Whether androgynous or sexless, Ha-Adam, as intentionally created by God, would not fit into the sex and gender binaries our society has set up. And since this is before the fall, the argument that intersex persons and trans persons only exist because of sin's corruption is disproven by the very first human, who was what we today call intersex. Thus, Ha-Adam is a testament to the goodness of everyone whose body is labeled broken or inferior. Our bodies are not disordered. They are intended by God. However, there is something wrong right here at the beginning. Not in the shape of Ha-Adam's body, but in its aloneness. Living God said, It is not good for Ha-Adam to be alone. I will make for them a helpful counterpart. And then God sets about doing just that, forming lots of other creatures and seeing if any of them are a suitable match. And the questions that spring to my mind are not ones I have answers to. I don't know if that loneliness was a flaw in that first human or something that God knew would happen from the start. What matters is what we do know. We do know that God does not deny or dismiss Ha-Adam's loneliness or blame it on Ha-Adam. God doesn't tell Ha-Adam that their aloneness is part of a greater plan, something that Ha-Adam will just have to get used to. Instead, God identifies the problem and then sets out to fix it. What if we did the same for various groups in our world, such as the transgender and disability communities? Instead of telling them either that how they've been made is some sort of mistake or flaw, a symptom of a fallen world, or else telling them that their gender dysphoria or chronic pain or the ableism they face is just their cross to bear and that to do something about it would go against God, what if we helped them identify their problem and set about with them to make things right? I'll give the example of my own transgender journey. I spent nearly the first two decades of my life without a name for the distress I experienced over being identified as a girl, over the changes that beset my body at puberty, and how other people perceived those changes. But finally, about a year into college, I discovered the term non-binary. I also learned about gender dysphoria, and suddenly, I could identify my problem. Just as God identified Ha-Adam's problem as aloneness, so I realized my problem was that I was assigned female but not a woman, and that being incorrectly gendered was causing my distress, my hatred for my own body. With help from others, I set about to correct this problem, starting with things like finding a new name, cutting my hair, and getting new clothes, changing my pronouns, and so on. Each of these things greatly helped me live into my true self, just as I imagine the animals who came to Ha-Adam did help reduce their loneliness, even if none of the animals completely fulfilled their need. For many trans persons, the steps of altering presentation, changing name or pronouns, finding an accepting community completely fulfill their needs. But for others of us, medical support is also needed. For myself, that meant top surgery to flatten my chest for good. Surgery was also what Ha-Adam needed. God, it turns out, was the first surgeon. Long, long before the invention of anesthesia, God cast Ha-Adam into a deep sleep and set to work.
ze cut into ha adam's side and the hebrew here is often translated as god taking a rib but the word is not rib it is the broader word for side so god surgically removes part of ha adam's side and closes up the flesh that remains when the first half of ha adam wakes up they sit up groggily put their hand to their newly stitched up still sore side and look up to see someone very familiar indeed, someone who was previously part of them, their own bone and flesh. The problem of aloneness has been solved with two bodies where there once was one. And of course, the anti-gay Christians out there take the story's little side note, this is why a man leaves his parents and cleaves to his wife, and turns it into proof of heterosexual marriage being the mandate for every human being. But first of all, this comment is not a command, but merely a description of a common occurrence. And more importantly, the relationship between these first two humans is not first and foremost about marriage or sexual reproduction. It's about God's affirmation of our need for community. It's about the equality and interdependence of all persons in all our diverse bodies. Because the Hebrew phrase describing the new human as a helpmate, a helpful counterpart, is not about subservient status, but equal status, about reciprocity. Finally, our text ends by telling us this. The two of them were naked, and they were not ashamed. We live in a world that demands our shame at our own nakedness and vulnerability, a world that feeds off our shame in our own bodies in order to sell us solutions. But the first two humans were not ashamed to need each other or be fully seen by one another, to have their differences noticed by one another. Each entrusted the other with the vulnerability that comes with physicality. They understood that their embodiedness was good in a way that we are forced to forget. Luckily, Jesus also reminds us of the goodness of our bodies in all their diversity with all their supposed flaws. Like Ha-Adam, when God took on flesh and entered their own creation, their body was one that the world calls lesser a brown Palestinian Jewish body in a world that privileged Roman Gentiles. Furthermore, his body became even more marginalized over time. As I said earlier, Ha-Adam and Jesus are connected by scar tissue, by the holes in their sides. However, while Ha-Adam's side is scarred from a life-bringing surgery performed in love, Jesus' side is a gaping wound made by a soldier's spear. While Ha-Adam's surgery shows us God's affirmation of the ways we participate in our own self-actualization, what good can come from hate-inflicted wounds? What good can possibly come from hands mutilated by a cross's nails? None. Not inherently. Suffering is never salvific, never. Jesus should not have had to endure the torture and death that brought about his wounds, no matter what good fruit eventually came from them. Just as no human should have to suffer persecution or pain, even if it's for the greater good or they glean some sort of lesson from it. 
God did not crucify Jesus. Other human beings, twisted by empire, did that. And yet, Jesus chose to keep his wounds upon rising from the dead. I imagine that Jesus, who is divine, had the power to rise in spirit alone. But instead, he keeps his wounded body. Why? Well, having entered the material world, Jesus understands the human need to experience with our senses. All throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus made use of things people can touch and taste and see. Water and bread, vine and branches, baptism and the washing of feet, to put into words the less tangible aspects of himself. Jesus fed and cared for people's bodies as well as their spirits because he too is human. He too knows that sometimes we need to reach out and touch the divine in order to believe. So, Jesus holds out his hands. He offers his side so that Thomas can see, can touch, can then proclaim, my Lord and my God. I believe Jesus also kept his body so that he can keep experiencing with us all that comes with having a body. He will still feel the breeze on his sweaty brow. He'll still feel the tug of hunger and the satisfaction of a full stomach. He'll laugh and weep and sing with friends who hug and hold him. Jesus keeps his body to remind us that physicality is good. He keeps his body for the sake of all who have been told that they should hate their body, should punish it, should avoid its natural pleasures and healthy desires. If Jesus, who is goodness itself, retains his body, we must conclude that physicality is part of our goodness. We are not spirits trapped in flesh prisons. We are embodied spirits, spirited bodies. And if that is the case, then we cannot avoid learning to love our own bodies. We cannot avoid learning to celebrate the amazing diversity of our species with the excuse that it's all transitory. Our diversity is vital to our humanity. Embodiment is here to stay. Keeping his body is well and good, but what about the wounds? Why did Jesus not choose to erase the marks of torture from his resurrected body? especially because these would have been disabling wounds. The holes in his feet impairing his mobility and making every step excruciating. The holes in his wrists decimating his fine motor skills. The hole in his side causing internal damage beyond what we can see. Again, I believe Jesus kept his wounds for us. For all of us who don't live into society's paradigm of the perfect body. Jesus' disabled body communicates a powerful message that disability and wholeness are not incompatible. His brown, disabled body proves that what the world calls brokenness does not need fixing to be whole after all. Even so, even without the need to be fixed to be whole, many of us do hope for various changes to our bodies. While many autistic persons view autism as a natural part of human diversity, and I believe that my resurrected self will still be autistic, 
I sure could do without the sensory overload and the meltdowns. And my friends and family members who deal with chronic illness and pain, even those who are proud to be members of the disabled community, deserve alleviation of that pain. Here on Earth, such alleviation looks like acceptance and access to the accommodations, medications, and various tools that help such persons function and participate in community. What will that alleviation look like at the resurrection, when we rise in spirit and body, the same yet transformed? Some disabled theologians say that disability will not be removed, but it will be redeemed. Any aspect of disability that truly impedes abundant life, which largely means ableism and inaccessibility, but may also include things like pain and loss, will go away. Even while the marks of diversity, the things that contribute to our unique identities and that connect us to our communities, will remain. I can't paint a vivid picture of what that looks like because I have no clue. But oh, how I look forward to it. And I see it in the marks of crucifixion that Jesus chose to keep. Those disabling wounds, did they cause his resurrected body chronic pain? What about the symptoms of PTSD that he surely would have developed from undergoing such agony? What remained? What changed? All that John tells us for sure is that the marks themselves remain. Marks of torture redeemed. And that is the foolishness of the cross, right there. In rising with those marks, Jesus took his unjust, meaningless death and made it matter. Jesus took an instrument of torture designed to isolate, shame, and brutalize a victim unto death, and he transformed it into a means of connection. He used his wounds to connect to Thomas and to join in solidarity with all of us who bear wounds. And indeed, we do all bear wounds of one kind or another. That is the last thing Jesus teaches us by keeping his physical, disabled body upon rising. It's the same thing that Ha'adam's need for mutual companionship taught us. Keeping his physical body, Jesus will rely on others as much as others rely on him. For in physical bodies so prone to injury and tiredness and hunger, none of us can get by alone. Regardless of age or disability status, gender or skill set, we all rely on one another and upon all creation to survive. And this is not weakness. For what the world calls weakness, God proves to be strength. God is the one being who could be entirely self-sufficient, but the power that God chooses is interdependence. Jesus teaches us that our mutual need is a gift. We feed one another, we wash one another's feet, we take care of the earth as she takes care of us, and in this mutual support we find love and fulfillment and everything else we need to live into abundance. Friends, I have come to believe these things with my whole heart, but still, still there are times I hate my body. I hate the parts I think are ugly. 
I hate how I become overstimulated. I hate how people look at me funny when I stim freely. And I hate how they see my body and think woman. But whenever I am about to be swallowed by that loathing, I think of Jesus and his risen body, the scars he chose to keep in solidarity with all of us with scars. And then I look at my body again. I think about how my own scars tell my story, the long path I've traveled, participating with God and becoming more and more the self Z created me to be. The scars that come from self-harm never should have happened, but since they did happen and I can't erase that, I can choose to make them matter, to move me forward and connect me to everyone else who bears scars. Meanwhile, I smile at my top surgery scars in the mirror, study the changes that testosterone has brought my body, and celebrate the gender euphoria of my flat chest and lowered voice, which is a feeling that most cisgender people will never experience. I stim, I flap my hands, and I rock, and I hum, and I enjoy how wonderful it feels, how these actions help me become more at home in God's good, good world, and how they connect me to the wonderful friends I've made within the autistic community. When I take this time to appreciate my body, then I am re-energized to join in God's vision of creation redeemed and transformed of a world where all bodies are celebrated as good bodies, all persons are accepted and respected, and all life is cherished. Friends, your bodies are good, and so are the changes you make to become more at home in them. I hope you can come to fully feel the truth in that statement, but even when you find it hard to believe, I hope you can focus on the ways your bodies connect you to others. I hope you can do what you can to show your body some love, even when you're not really feeling it. Fake it till you make it, you know? And trust that it will be transformed and redeemed. Thanks be to the God who forms each and every one of us with intention, and who invites us to participate in the journey towards our flourishing. Thanks be to the God who became one of us and, in becoming a human dependent on others, showed us the power and goodness in interdependence. Thank you for listening to this episode of Blessed Are the Binary Breakers. I hope that it held some meaning for you, whatever your own relationship to your body is. My sermon focused mainly on intersex, trans, and disabled bodies, but there are so many other identities that impact how we and others interact with our bodies. If you want to share your thoughts on how your own experience with embodiment enters into this discussion, please reach out. You can find me at queerlychristian36 at gmail.com. Or message or tag me on Tumblr at Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, on Twitter at Binary Breakers, on Instagram at Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, and I think that about sums up all my social media. I'll close today's episode 
with a prayer that expands the conversation a bit. I did my best to keep the prayer from being too Christian-centric so that persons of all religions may join in, but if there are words that don't resonate with you and your encounter of the divine, I invite you to substitute in your own words. Siblings in solidarity, let us lift up our many different voices in prayer. For those who struggle to love themselves, those who are bombarded by the lies of fat phobia, misogyny, ableism, white supremacy, heteronormativity, cissexism, intersexism, or any of the many tangled systems that eat away at our self-worth and make us targets for others' hate, we pray. For those drowning in guilt or shame about who they are or who they are not, about how their brain is wired or what accommodations they need, about what they want or how they look, we pray. For Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders who are hyper-visible and unjustly blamed in this time of pandemic, we pray. For trans youth who also find themselves under a cruel spotlight, their human rights made the subject of debate, their healthcare needs put in the hands of politicians, we pray. Finally, for black persons in the United States whose bodies make them the target of racial profiling and police brutality particularly for George Floyd and his family, as the court case against his murderer proceeds, and for Dante Wright and his family, we pray. O oh, divinity beyond knowing, O oh, divinity thrumming through our very cells, to you we lift these prayers, along with all the wordless yearnings of our hearts. Teach us the wisdom that the world calls foolishness, Show us how to value what the world calls worthless. Help us learn the power in interdependence, in vulnerability, in reaching out for support. Empower us to act in solidarity, to bring about a world where the lowly are lifted up and every need is met. Amen. <laughs>